everyone and welcome back to another episode of the just checking in podcast this podcast as always is brought to you by ben a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up by their mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations you know by now i am your host freddie cocker each pod i check in with a very special guest we have a natter about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about if it helps that person with their mental health we'll discuss it spoken to quite a few journalists on the Just Checking In pod so far and with every guest I've been very keen to talk about the precarious nature of the industry, how it affects journalists work-life balance, classism and how all of that impacts a journalist's mental health. My guest for today's pod Olivia Foster is going to talk all about that and then some. She is a producer, director and writer based in London with over a decade of experience in the media industry from directing branded content shoots to producing podcasts and writing for leading women's publications. Storytelling is at the heart of everything she does. In this podcast, we discuss imposter syndrome, the pressures of the media industry, the stigma she faced being made redundant, her experiences of therapy, including group therapy, and the importance of setting boundaries with friends to manage her mental health. This is how our check-in went. Olivia, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thanks so much for coming on and taking the time out of, I'm sure, your very busy schedule to talk to me. First off, how are you and how are you managing with everything that's going on right now in the world? I saw a very funny but sweet tweet about how you built up a quaint little friendship with the handyman in your building. Is that right? Yeah, me and Trevor are like best pals. I work in a big old building, so we have this handyman and he comes in Monday to Friday. And on the first lockdown, he was furloughed and I missed him so much because we'll have like a little catch up every single day. Somehow, if I walk out of my flat, he will just be there hanging around or you can hear him, he sings a lot. And so, yeah, he's like really, really supportive and sweet. The other day, he literally waited while I unpacked an entire eyeshadow kit and then like was really interested in looking at all the clothes like where are you gonna wear that one where are you gonna wear that one I was like you are literally like my hype man right now for my coming out of lockdown looks Trevor has really really helped me get through this last lockdown he sounds like a great man and for me the singing part sounds a lot like me too because I sing a lot to myself which is the only way I can keep saying at the moment your journey is such an intriguing one Olivia and I think the listeners will uncover some real gems throughout so shall we just get on with the show Journalism isn't your sole focus today, Olivia, but it very much used to be. So let's start the pod by talking about your journey into it and how you broke into the industry, shall we say. I understand you studied it as a degree, but it wasn't always something you wanted to pursue. Tell the listeners how you got into the industry and maybe where your love for writing began as well. Yeah, so you're right. I didn't always want to be a journalist. I actually wanted to be an actress or moreover, I actually wanted to be famous which thankfully now having met a lot of famous people throughout my career, I'm really glad that that didn't happen. So I'd been studying drama and dance as well. And I tried to apply for acting school and I went through the process and I didn't get in and each audition was £35. And my mum said to me at the end of the first year of auditions, she was like, if you want to do that again next year, you can do it, but you've got to pay for it. And I was like, £35 times eight? Absolutely not. I'm not doing that. 
So when it came around September, which was kind of like time everyone was going to universities, I just looked through the paper at the clearing options of my local university. I was living in Cornwall at the time in Falmouth. I saw journalism and I was kind of like, oh, journalism's quite cool. I like reading magazines. You know, I've always been pretty good at writing. So I just called them up and I was like, hi, do you want to let me on this course? And they were like, no, you have a dance and drama A-level. We don't want to let you on the course. And I went along to the university and managed to persuade the course leader, a man called Jim Hall, who sadly passed away quite a while ago now I went down there and I met him and he was like yeah you're you seem to be kind of into it sure I've got a space left on the course you can have it it wasn't a love at first sight career but actually I studied at Falmouth for a year and then I moved up to London and moved to LCC and by the end of it I was actually kind of set on being a journalist you got your first job whilst you were at university via a random message on social media, I believe. Tell me about this opportunity and were you slightly apprehensive at first having a complete stranger try and offer you a job? Did your sixth sense maybe kick in at any point? Well, yeah, so it was right at the end of university and I was a really early adopter of Twitter. So I had this account and I would just I would follow loads and loads of journalists and at the time there weren't that many people on there so quite often they would follow you back particularly because I'd lied in my bio and said I was already a journalist myself and I'd followed this guy on Twitter and he'd followed me back and I hadn't really thought anything else of it and then about a week later I get this random friend request and I didn't put two and two together that it was the same man I was just like who's this like old bloke and I say old he was probably I don't know 45 at the time so that's extremely offensive of me but I was in my early 20s so everyone over 28 was considered old in my head and I sent him I actually looked back at this this week before recording this pod to see what I'd said I sent him genuinely the most unprofessional embarrassing cringy message ever I've been telling this story for years and what I tell people I said was hi I don't know who you are like did you mean to add me what I actually sent was like three paragraphs of like random jokes and like awkward stuff with loads of kisses at the end. Thankfully, he still replied to this and he was just like, yeah, I'm actually like an editor. I'm just about to launch my own site and I saw you on Twitter and I thought you were funny. I then sent him more cringy messages, like really, really unprofessional. And luckily he still replied. And he was a guy called James Brown and he'd started quite a lot of big magazines back in the day. And he worked on Loaded and he'd worked at NME when he was younger as well. And he was launching a website called Sabotage Times. And yeah, so I went and met him. And I went and met him thinking that we were just having like, you know, a meeting. And by the end of the meeting, he was like, yeah, so can you start tomorrow? And I was like, I'm... I'm still doing my dissertation and he was like oh well when do you hand that in and I was like oh you know two weeks on Thursday or whatever and he was like okay well you can start on the Friday and I was like okay then so yeah it was a pretty amazing opportunity I have to say at the time like it felt like nothing like that had ever happened to me before and so I just kind of grabbed it with both hands and ran with it and started working for him. Can you tell me about the journey from this point as you went to a few different outlets whilst you were finding your feet, including Heat and Grazia magazines respectively, before you eventually went freelance? What challenges did you encounter along the way whilst you navigated that journey and how did any of those impact your mental health? Once I'd started working with James, I worked with him for a few months and then he had a mate called Sam Delaney who was at Heat magazine, who was the editor of Heat at the time. 
And he said, oh, you know, my mate's working at Heat. Do you want to go and do an internship there for a month? And I was like, oh, my God, yes, 100%. I want to go and do an internship at Heat. So I went and worked there and actually ended up staying in the end for two years. And then I was poached by Grazia, where I also worked for two years. Like, first four years of my career were, like, they were brilliant, but they were also kind of, like, awful. Because on the one hand, I was in my early 20s, and I'm 33 now. I was working for massive publications. Like, when you think about your journalism career, you think of those places as the places you work up to. You don't think of them as the first places that you're going to walk into at, like, 22. So that was amazing. And I was working with some really fun, funny, brilliant people. Like, journalists, by and large, in general, are just always such interesting people. They've always got a story. They're the person you want to be standing next to at a party. And I was also having like some amazing experiences as well. You know, I was going to lots of different events. I was meeting lots of different people. I was traveling a little bit. I was going to festivals. And we, we did some mad, mad things that like you probably wouldn't do now in journalism and really funny things. You know, when One Direction were on X Factor, we had a load of T-shirts printed up with their faces on them and we went and delivered some to them personally. It was just a real laugh. But on the other hand, because I was doing showbiz journalism, which wasn't really something that I'd ever been interested in, it wasn't a sector of the in- industry that I'd ever really wanted to go into. I always kind of wanted to go into features. I just felt a huge amount of pressure. You know, I was working on the news desk, and when you're on a news desk, you know, you have to be delivering stories every single day. And that for me just was not good for my mental health. Like, I'm very good with ideas, but the pressure of finding and sourcing these stories was quite a lot. And I think. You know, now people would say, why didn't you just like leave and do something else then? I see quite a lot of that on like social media. People are quite sort of like, well, you just shouldn't do the job if you don't like it. But at that point, there was I, there was so much fear driving me that this was my one chance and this was my one opportunity and I better not fuck it up. And I really like internalised that pressure and it was really, really bad for my mental health. I think at one point I was having panic attacks literally every single day that I was working there. And there was also a big disconnect as well because I was going to these like flashy showbiz parties but at one point I was living in a cupboard in one of my mum's friend's houses. She had this cupboard at the top of her stairs and I literally lived in the cupboard. I was living like on one hand this massively glitzy glamorous life where I was going to parties all the time and on the other hand I was literally living in a cupboard with no electricity. That also was quite difficult to sort of balance and yeah as I say it was kind of equally brilliant and equally awful and after those four years I went freelance and actually that was then a lot better and it meant I could still work with those magazines but a lot of that pressure sort of was alleviated not least because when I went freelance I started like doing more features pitching and I was able to sort of pitch ideas that were my own and it just felt like it was a little bit more on my terms and I think that that had like a massive impact on just making me that little bit happier. You spoke there, Olivia, about the industry itself and the issues within it. So I'll come on to this question now because journalism is one of the most precarious and volatile industries for many reasons. And aspiring journalists often have to work long hours, weekends, holidays as a given, let alone an expectation. And when you struggle with that, you were often told to be grateful, in inverted commas, and you felt like you constantly had to prove yourself. How did hearing those words affect your mental health on a day-to-day basis? Did you feel insecure? I think I felt a huge amount of pressure, and I felt like sometimes be grateful was kind of used as a little bit of a silencer. It was used as like a 
sort of shut up and get on with it you should like really be happy with where you're going with this and I think that the difficult thing with that was that at one point I worked over £8,000 worth of free hours in a year, which given the tiny amount of money I was earning at the time is a lot of free hours. And I think that that be grateful message in journalism can often be used to sort of like hide slightly toxic practices. And so, yeah, I think it's a difficult message to put out to people to tell them that really. We talk a lot on this podcast, Livia, about the importance of making mistakes and failure and learning from that so we can normalise it for our listeners. Without (laughs) jeopardising your professional integrity, is there a story you feel comfortable sharing about a mistake or failure you've experienced or made and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I I can tell you a story about the biggest mistake that I've ever made, which I feel like is going to be a bit of a bigger mistake but I don't know possibly than the sorts of mistakes people usually come out with to this type of question so when I was 26 I was approached by someone for quite a big job in Dubai and I won't give you the full full length of this story but I'd never had any interest in moving to Dubai but because the job was so big and the person who approached me was someone I really respected I decided that I was going to go for it, not least because every other person I spoke to about it was like, oh my God, you have to go for us. This is like amazing. It's amazing opportunity. It's loads of money. It's going to be brilliant for you. So I went for this job and I got it. And when I got it, I literally cried for a full day. I was like, I don't, this is not, I don't think this is the happy reaction that I should be having to getting this big job. I listened to everyone around me and everyone said no no you should go for this job and there were a few things as well that like with the company that I thought oh some things are not adding up here with this job parts of what they told me parts of like their work culture there were a few things where I was like "Mm, I don't know if this is quite what it's cracked up to be but anyway I handed in my notice on my job and I handed in my notice on my flat and I broke up with the boyfriend that I had at the time although that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because He wasn't the best boyfriend ever. That was one good part, got rid of him. And I set myself up to move out to Dubai. And a week before I was due to leave, I flew out there for an event that the publication were hosting. And when I got there, all of these things that I had thought might be an issue turned out to be an issue, but like tenfold. And I was like, oh God, what on earth am I doing? So I flew back to London. I went to my mum's house. I remember like getting to her doorstep. She opened the door. I started crying and I was like, I'm not moving to Dubai. And I sent them an email and I told them that I wasn't going to go to Dubai. And I think that the biggest mistake for me was that like, I had known that I should not move to Dubai. I had known deep down that that was not the right job for me. And yet I still made the mistake of saying yes because I listened to all these other people who were in my ear going, just go for a year, do it, it's brilliant. It's a great opportunity. Nothing like this will ever happen again. And in a way it was, you know, it ended up being a mistake that was positive in the end because I eventually after that went freelance because I had no choice because I'd given up my job and I got loads of opportunities after that but it was kind of it was a very tough time because people were talking about it a lot if you say that you're going to move to Dubai and also have a massive leaving party as I had had and make a big deal about it as I had done then you have to then listen to people gossip about 
what you've done and what you were doing and how it's going to impact your career so yeah that's probably the biggest mistake I've ever made in my career and it was also it was coming off the back of the time that I'd had all of those mental health problems that I was talking to you about earlier and I kind of felt like at the time and I didn't tell anyone this and I kind of wish I had because I think it would have made people understand a bit better I knew when I went to Dubai had I moved there those mental health problems were going to come back I could tell I could tell it was going to be one of those jobs that was going to make my life an absolute misery and at the time the conversation around mental health wasn't really as such that that was something that I really shared with anyone and so I just dealt with the fact that people did sort of take the piss out of me and people said some unkind things and I remember someone telling me that someone I used to work with had said oh she'll never work in the industry again now which absolutely wasn't true I think the lesson I learned was like always always trust your gut instinct if something in your mind and your body is saying to you this is not the opportunity for you like nine times out of ten it's not the opportunity for you and you have to like learn to trust that class and privilege are big issues in journalism and the industry generally Olivia and it's something we talked about a lot when we spoke off air it was something you were keen to really talk about why was that um I think that it's a really important thing to talk about I think for me personally like I tell this story about how I got into journalism and it would be really remiss for me to not recognize that that journey was made so much easier for me by how I sound and how I look I know I'm not looking my most glamorous this morning but at the time as a glamorous young 22 year old with lots of fashionable clothing mostly bought from Primark I was able to sort of slide into that industry because I looked like everyone else there because everyone else there looks like they're white and and middle class and at the time I probably wouldn't have thought of myself as middle class because I've got a slightly weird upbringing which we'll probably come on to later but you have to recognize it and I think that there is a real lack of variation when it comes to journalists you know it's still a very very white middle class industry it's still a very male industry and I think that's to its detriment I think that I often see publications even now and it has got better but even now you see publications writing certain stories or taking certain angles and you think well that wouldn't have happened if you had a more diverse staffing when it comes to imposter syndrome, Olivia, is this something you've ever experienced in the industry? And do you think it's common amongst journalists you know? And what other mental health challenges might it create when it comes to access, fitting in or other aspects of journalism as well? I think, yeah, I think imposter syndrome is probably impacts pretty much every single person I've ever met. And that's from like the interns all the way up to the editors, you know, I think that journalism and also creative industries as a whole because I work across like quite a lot of different sectors now it's a really big issue and I think that part of that is because you feel like you're always in competition with people and I think especially when I was younger I was always really really aware of who were the other writers who I was going up against who were the people pitching the same types of stories as me who was getting the bylines in the publications that I wished I was working for. If you start to pay that too much attention, then you can begin to feel really like you're falling behind and like maybe you're not good enough. And yeah, you begin to get that imposter syndrome feeling of like, am I just about to be found out? Like, am I actually a terrible, terrible writer? And I think as well, because you're pitching ideas a lot of the time. And now 
having done that for 10 years, I can pitch an idea and someone can say no and it literally has no impact on me at all. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever, I'll come up with something else. But when you're younger and you're feeling like you're giving a part of yourself to someone when you're pitching those ideas and you you know, you know, work them up or you sit there at home with your newspaper cuttings and you're like, oh my God, I've got something really great. And then you send it to someone and they're like, no, not for us, thanks. And you're like, oh my God, I feel damaged and how am I ever going to like come back from this and maybe just all my ideas are rubbish so I won't bother pitching them anymore and it takes a lot of practice to separate yourself from your work like I was terrible at it I think imposter syndrome is huge I mean I can't speak for other groups of people whose like experience I haven't lived I can imagine that if you are not seeing yourself in a newsroom as readily as say someone like I might I can imagine that that would be very difficult and you might question why am I the only one here yeah you might feel that pressure just as keenly but as I said I don't feel like I can sort of I can't speak for other people's experiences but I certainly felt when I was younger the imposter syndrome was real and it's still real sometimes if I go to a new job if I book a new client I'm like do they realize they've hired me do they know that I'm the person that's coming in here like am I qualified for this even when I'm overqualified I still think that you have to talk yourself down a bit from that you mentioned earlier about your move into freelance journalism and I want to wrap up this topic by talking about it as it's been a very positive move for you for a number of reasons including in how you feel valued as a professional tell me more about that and why it's helped your mental health yeah well so I don't do a huge amount of journalism now so when I first moved into freelance journalism that was quite a long time ago probably sort of I'd guess seven years ago but I am still freelance and I am still working across I work now across agencies and I do quite a lot of production and I still do some freelance journalism as well and I think that the difference now I mean, the difference, to be honest, doesn't massively come from the journalism. It comes from doing production. I think is that the dynamic of how I work has changed. In the jobs that I'm doing now, you're definitely on more of a sort of equal footing with people. And I think that was something that I really struggled with in journalism is the sort of power dynamics of if you're interviewing someone, especially if you're interviewing celebrities, like sometimes they just hate you by virtue of you being there. And I'm not someone who's particularly good with that. And I think that that's really important to note. Like my issues with journalism are my issues with journalism and the roles that I had. They're definitely not issues with the industry itself in terms of many people will be a showbiz journalist and they'll absolutely love it and they'll fly through it and it'll be like their dream career. But for me, it was not a career that matched very well with my personality and how I do things. So now I find it a lot easier because, you know, I work on a lot of podcasts and it's nice. You can sort of sit back and let other, you know, I'm a producer. I sit back, I let other people have the conversation. And that's sort of a better dynamic for me than having to walk up to someone at a party and ask them about their recent divorce and have them tell me to fuck off and then feel like an awful person forever. And actually, you know, I should say I don't think that journalists who do that should feel like awful people because celebrities talk about their personal lives all the time. And if you talk about your personal life all the time at parties, then people are going to ask you about your personal life at parties. But it just wasn't the job for me. And just a final question, Olivia, for anyone who wants to get into journalism or the work that you do now, given what you've been through, what advice or message would you give them from your experience? I think with either, but with journalism I think you really 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 have to like want to do it you need to read a lot 
you need to find out who the journalists are that you like. I would say follow them on social media, interact with them at appropriate times, but don't bombard them with endless messages. And I think find what your niche is and find what you really want to do. I think there's a lot of people who gatekeep journalism and say, oh, you know, not everyone can pitch journalism. And in a way, it's true in the sense that not everyone can write. You know, there are some people who want to be writers who are absolutely terrible at it. And there is only a certain level that you can teach. When it comes to that, you have to have a base level of skill to work from. Otherwise, yeah, it's probably not going to happen. But I think if you know you've got that base level of skill and you've maybe got a specialism, I think that's somewhere that people don't talk about enough. There are a lot of specialist publications. If you feel like you've got a specialist subject that you know something about that nobody else could write about, or you've got contacts that you feel you could interview, pitch a story and take it from there. In terms of journalism in general, I'm not in the industry as much anymore, so it feels difficult to understand where it is in terms of would I suggest someone try and become a magazine journalist now? I personally would say no, but I don't know that people who work at magazines would agree with that. And I don't know how they feel the industry is going at the moment. I loved working in magazines, but it's definitely, it's very different time to when I started now. I'd say digital is probably your safer bet not least I guess in terms of skill set like everyone really needs to know how to do digital journalism in the end and then in terms of production I mean it's difficult because I had a very weird intro into production so actually the first editor I had at Heat magazine Sam Delaney who I mentioned earlier he a few years ago got me on his radio show on talk radio and at this point I was tired of journalism I think I was like six or seven years in and I was just like I want to change I don't really want to work for magazines anymore and he had a production company and he was just like why don't you come work for me at my production company I was like yeah okay then so that's not the traditional route into production and does speak of the nepotism which is rife within the industry which you know I have benefited from myself as well I think from what I've heard more Traditionally, if you want to do production type work, then start from the bottom and work your way up. Look out for runners jobs, look out for those low level jobs. And I think that I was an intern and I worked my way up, you know, when I first started my career. And I think that that is, it's very, very beneficial. There are lessons that my editors at Heat and at Grazia taught me that still are so applicable to my work today. And lessons that had I just gone in without having that sort of training and having them build me up and having them look at my work and tell me how to sort of write in a better way, I don't think I would be as good of a writer as I am. Well, I know I wouldn't be as good a writer if I didn't have that kind of work. So I think like don't underestimate the value of having at least a staff job at some point and getting that training from those older people who have that experience and can really pass that down to you. And journalists, as I said earlier, they're very interesting, but they're also like generally fairly kind and fairly nurturing and keen to pass on that stuff, you know, and keen to sort of teach you the ropes as it were. We've checked in about your journalism and professional journey, Olivia. Let's dive a bit deeper now and talk about your own mental health journey. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question. Walk me through your early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Olivia we meet here? 
Well, I had quite an unusual early life in that I grew up on the Isles of Scilly, which is just off the coast of Cornwall, often mistaken for Sicily, which is far more glamorous, quite frankly. I mean, my main mental health struggles came later in my life, or at least were diagnosed later in my life, but I definitely felt when I was growing up on Scilly that I didn't fit in, which I guess would be probably my first although I wouldn't have acknowledged it at the time, my first sort of experience of having mental health problems or that feeling of like not feeling like you're supposed to be where you are. It's 28 miles off the end of Cornwall. There's 2,500 people who live there. The island that I spent a lot of my childhood on only had 63 people on it. And I felt very, very trapped there. I know that that probably had an impact on then what the sort of things that happened to me later in my life. I think the Olivia that you meet there is probably a sort of a mildly unhappy teenager who really wants to break out of that place that they're stuck in. I want to talk about the article you wrote in Marie Claire about finances and how that can affect your mental health at this point. You did also reference in the article that you worked from the age of 12 and the desire to have money made you grow up really fast, which you kind of mentioned a bit earlier in that answer. When it came to how money affected your mental health can you talk to me about that for the listeners yeah so I did stop working at 12 which I should say I don't think is a good idea generally speaking I was working in a nice little sort of B&B I was going to say Airbnb but I don't even think Airbnb existed at the time it was a B&B a bread like bed and breakfast and I was doing the sort of cleaning there at the weekends and it was fine but I just think you know kids are kids and they should probably if they can be allowed to wait a little bit longer maybe like 15 16 is a good age to start getting those first jobs but part of the reason that I started working was because my parents couldn't give me much money and that did have an impact on me because that wasn't the situation that a lot of my friends had at the time and so I was always from a very very young age and actually even before that I was conscious that we did not have as much money as a family as other people did I was conscious that I personally didn't have access to as much money which in turn meant that I didn't have access to opportunities, it meant I didn't have access to holidays, it meant I didn't have access to, you know, all the things that I saw my friends doing. Like Also, you know, when you're young, and, and even now to a certain extent, all those things really matter. And even things like getting new clothes really matter. And it definitely, over the years, impacted on my mental health, because as I grew up, I became really sort of obsessed with the idea of if I have money then I will have stability and I will have all these things and then I will be happy and it would be a lie to say that that isn't to some extent true my mental health has improved the more money that I have had there's a good meme that actually I tried to find it and I haven't been able to find it but it says something like when people are told they need therapy often what they need is money that is in some respects and quite often true. A lot of problems that people have and a lot of problems certainly that I had when I was younger were not necessarily real mental health problems. They were money problems which then impacted onto my mental health. You talk in the article and you, you also told me off air about this, about this anxiety you had where now you are in a much better financial position as you said you don't want to go back to the previous position where you didn't have a lot of money. How do you manage that as there doesn't appear to be an easy solution to it on the surface at least? 
No, I mean, I think that a lot of it is about checking your privilege. I think a lot of it is about like really having to root myself back into thinking, hang on a second, you are okay now. You do have money now. Even when I can afford things now, there's still something in the back of my mind thinking, oh, but don't spend that just yet because what if you suddenly check your bank balance and there's no money left there? And it takes a long time to sort of get past that. And I think, yeah, it's just a case of really trying to remind myself regularly, this is your reality now, this is your reality now. And it's still something that, yeah, I definitely have taken a long time to get used to I'd say it's probably only sort of in the last year that I've got better at that. Do you think that has any wider self-esteem implications? Yeah I mean I think that idea of I don't deserve this is definitely one that people who have grown up without money have. It's something that I notice sometimes when I'm talking to my friends who have had more gilded lives than mine, shall I say. Sometimes I catch myself thinking like, God, why do you think you can have all this stuff? And then I think, God, why do you think you can't have this stuff? Like, why do you think to yourself when you hear these things like, oh, nobody should have that, that's too much. So yeah, I do think that that feeling of not being worth something trickles out of that and into other areas of your life. The next topic I want to dive into here, Olivia, around your journey is redundancy stigma. Now, I know all about this having been through it several times as a 21 to 25 year old. For me, it was very emasculating, made me feel socially awkward when I'm never usually. It's very demoralising and caused me real periods of hopelessness and poor self-esteem when it was at its worst. You wrote about your experience being made redundant in an article for Grazia in 2019. Tell me more about what you discussed in the article and why you wanted to write it. I mean, I think I wanted to write it, and this is actually like slightly pathetic of me, but I kind of wanted to write it because I was really struggling to talk to my friends about how I was feeling about having been made redundant. And as you said, like, you know, you've been through it as well. It's a really... It's quite a stigmatising thing and I don't think I ever realised that, you know, when I was going through my career and I'd see people get made redundant, I'd always focus on the element of, wow, they just got loads of money for doing nothing. And I never really thought about what impact that might have on their confidence, whether actually they might care about having their job than they do about having that money I should say I didn't get a payout I was on a weird sort of mates contract not contract thing situation which I wouldn't get myself back into again but which I fully take responsibility for as well because I was perfectly fine with it at the time and you know I wanted to write it because I think that a we don't talk enough about those things in general but yeah I was really really struggling to talk to my friends about it and I was struggling to get them to understand how different my life was at that point because I hadn't got a payout and because it hadn't come massively suddenly because there were issues with the company I was working with they'd got rid of someone the month before so it wasn't like completely 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 out of the blue but to be honest my ego probably made me think that I wasn't going to be the next one you know I was struggling financially I didn't have any backup I hadn't planned for this scenario and that was quite worrying and also it just it impacted my confidence hugely so I think that the problem is when you get made redundant is that's not really the best time that you feel like, you know, looking for jobs or putting yourself out there. You feel like 
even though you know it's not your fault, you know, I knew that it wasn't my fault. I knew that the issues with the company I was working with were financial from their side and it was a financial decision from their side to let me go. But I still, in the back of my mind, was like, oh, maybe it's just because I'm actually rubbish. Maybe it's not because of their finances. Maybe it's because I'm the most terrible worker that has ever existed and I'm now never going to work again. And that's really hard to also deal with. So I wanted to talk about like some of those sort of confidence issues. And yeah, the financial issue, because I was used to going out all the time. I was used to spending time with my friends all the time. And they just presumed that that would carry on. And it couldn't carry on because I didn't have any money. Your experiences have so many commonalities with mine, Olivia, especially when it comes to the stigma. Now, my friends never gave me any stick or made me feel awkward about being unemployed or being made redundant. It was more all internally. But there is the social stigma. You know, when people ask you how your job search is going and you haven't got something and you have to say to five or six people, yep, I'm still unemployed or I've still been made redundant. Or for example, when you tell one person you've got an interview and you get a bit excited about it and if you don't get it, you've got to tell them. So I kind of learned quite quickly that when I did get interviews, I'd never tell anyone until I got it. Do you share any of those experiences and what other examples did you find when it came to the social element of redundancy stigma? Yeah, it's funny you should say that actually, because I hadn't thought back to that time about that and yeah I very quickly got to the point where yeah I didn't want to tell anyone anything about what I was doing until it paid off I think the thing is people mean really well but they ask you so often like they're asking you like every day I had two housemates at the time and both of them would come home from their jobs and they'd be like so any news but this would happen every day and like as anyone who's ever job hunted knows, nothing really ever happens in one singular day. Often it can take ages. I think it took me two months before I had booked some work again. And I think I did like, I don't know, maybe I wrote one article or something in that time. I really wasn't working very much at all. And so, and they're not meaning to, but it puts a lot of pressure on you. I would feel like oh my god it's compounding these feelings of like I'm a failure when someone is asking me every day how I'm doing so that definitely impacted me but also I think as I wrote in the article I wrote about that friend's birthday where he sent me this insanely expensive restaurant and I knew that me and the other people who were going for this dinner were going to have to split his meal as well And I was just like, I genuinely don't have the money for this. And so that also felt really shameful and embarrassing. It felt really embarrassing, even though he was one of my best friends, it felt really embarrassing to text him and say, I can't afford to spend this money on this meal. Like I really want to, and I really want to be there for you, but I actually can't. And I remember like at the time, just like crying, sending this message and just feeling so like, sort of like a social outcast because I was doing basic, I was like lockdown living at that point. So I was like, why don't we just go for a picnic in the park? People don't wanna go for a picnic in the park. People wanna go for lunch at a pub. And I get that because I wanna go for lunch at a pub too. But it was really, really difficult to try and say to people like, oh, the reason that I want to go for lunch at the park rather than lunch at the pub is because I actually don't have enough money for lunch at the pub. And yeah, it felt quite shameful. And and I think like, as you said, it ended up making me more insular and it ended up making me sort of like, I'd sort of keep quiet about stuff until I felt, okay, I've I've got some good news to share now. I'll let you guys know. 
One line really stood out to me in the piece, Olivia, which revolves around a very hurtful comment a friend gave to you about your current situation, as it were, at the time. She said, quote, get over it. There are lots of people poorer than you. How did it feel hearing those words? I mean, on the day, I was livid. I was like, you are such an absolute bitch. But the thing is, as I said in the piece, she was right. There are lots of people who are poorer than me. But I think that we should try and live in the assumption, especially with our friends, that most people know that. Most people who are decent people don't think that their problem is the worst problem in the world. I wasn't homeless, no. I wasn't the worst person in the world. I wasn't having the worst time in the world. But it didn't make that experience any less valid. Like you said, it's definitely a case of understanding what the other person's going through. When I was made redundant on three occasions, I spent several months unemployed as well. One, I think the worst I spent was four or five, perhaps even six months unemployed. At the time, I was extremely lucky to have my parents as a safety net because I live in London, although I didn't feel I didn't feel as lucky at the time. But my mum or dad used to say to me sometimes, oh, why don't you apply for universal credit? But I almost felt like I was inadequate or not worthy enough or deserving enough to even claim it. And perhaps if I did do it and go through that process, it would make me feel even worse. Are those feelings ones that ever entered your mind too? No, I think... Well, so I had been on benefits when I was 19, when I was living down in Cornwall, before I made the decision to do journalism. The happy story of finding that newspaper that I told earlier. I had had quite a long time of being unemployed because I'd been at college and then I I couldn't get a job. So I was on benefits then. And I couldn't have got benefits at the time living in the house that I was living in. My rent was too high, which I'd never really considered was like a very London centric issue. I think that like you're tied into this contract in this house, you lose your job, but your rent is too high to apply for any sort of benefits. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's hard that question, like in terms of universal credit and things like that, as much as they are a very, it's a very, very flawed system. I felt ashamed that I didn't... When I was on actual benefits before, and they were different, it wasn't universal credit, but it was job seekers, and I had housing benefit as well. When I was on benefits when I was younger, I mostly felt shame that I hadn't managed to get a job, but I didn't feel like I was not worthy of those benefits. Because before that, I'd been working, I'd been doing my best to work, and I was just in a position where I I hadn't been able to find a job. So I felt kind of like, okay, well, this is what it is, and that's what they're there for, and I'm just going to have to do it. And I think that anyone who's in that position, I would hope would, as hard as it is, it's much better to do those things and to sign up for them and and then to use them to help yourself to get to your next spot if that's possible for you I think it can feel sometimes like you're sort of giving up and I think I did feel that a little bit when I had job seekers I was like oh my god it's almost like I'm even though it's called job seekers it's almost like I'm giving up job seeking and I'm now going to be doing this but actually it was more of a stepping stone to help me onto the job I eventually got in Weatherspoons, a company I would morally not work for now uh, and a company which was awful to work for at the time working in a kitchen at 6am but it did pay quite well I have to say for my young self it was a good enough wage. I want to move on to the final article you wrote Livia which we're going to do a deep dive in which is about your experience of therapy which was for Marie Claire. Before we dive into the therapy itself and how that went set the scene for the listeners and why you felt compelled to seek it out. 
I think I was just bored of myself and my mental health issues. I think I'd sort of exhausted them. I think when I was in my early 20s, so I first got diagnosed with depression when I was 18. And then my biggest period of having big mental health problems was that period when I was just starting out my career in journalism. And I think I just got to the point, a lot of the like big stuff had ended, you know, I wasn't feeling as depressed as I was before, but I still had like a lot of generalised anxiety. I was still getting myself into sort of tricky situations in my personal life with friends and with relationships with people where I didn't necessarily have the boundaries or the skills to extricate myself from certain situations and I just decided that enough was enough I was kind of like it's up to me to make this change and no one's going to do it for me and no amount of loving support or great people in my life of which I have many is going to do that for me either the only person that's going to be able to make this decision was me and it had been quite a long time coming I think a lot of people when you go to therapy or when you start like a mental health journey of trying to actually do something about it you've usually been thinking about it for a few years and then going that's not that bad maybe I'll just take some St John's wort I don't know maybe I'll try CBD oil it takes a long time to work up to it it's sort of like preparing for something and then you're like okay finally okay fine I'm ready I'm gonna do it I understand the group therapy you did was a really big turning point in your life Olivia what did it teach you about yourself and maybe what did it teach you about other people as well? Yeah, so I did my therapy through MIND, the mental health charity. And before you do, they do one-to-one sessions, but before you do that, you do sort of a group. And my group was based on mindful self-compassion. And for me, it was a really good starting point for me because a lot of my issues were that I wasn't particularly nice to myself and therefore I was accepting a lot of treatment in my life that was a reflection of that. And I think doing the group thing was really good because I can't speak about individuals and obviously their experiences from the group, but it was a really varied set of people who were there from all different walks of life with all different types of jobs and different ages as well you know there were people there I would guess I don't know their specific ages so this might be very unflattering I would guess we were looking at probably 25 to maybe about 60 I've encountered a lot of people in my life with mental health problems but most of them are my friends and a lot of them are very I guess similar issues stemming from similar you know a lot of I guess when you're in a friendship group you tend to have some similar sort of consistency in the things that bother you or the things that might impact on your mental health but this was it was an opportunity to see that mental health can impact people at any age and also for many different reasons and there was something that was sort of quite comforting in that I guess and being able to support each other and it was also really nice because it was a space that was completely free of judgment and they were people who they didn't have any investment in my life in the sense of outside of that room they didn't have you know any judgment on my life and vice versa so we could talk really freely and really openly about our experiences without any of that worry that sometimes you know you might talk to a friend and you're conscious of their feelings as well or maybe if you've got an issue with a friend that's impacted your mental health that can be difficult to talk about but with these people we were just completely free to say whatever we wanted, whatever we felt, and explore those feelings together. After you received this therapy, like you said, you began to become more self-aware, you began to look after your mental health and the relationships you have with other people, not just romantic, but friendships too. However, this is also where you ran into a bit of difficulty, not because of anything you did, 
but how your friends reacted to you setting boundaries for yourself and making them and making them respect that. If you could just elaborate on that for me and and how did that change play out in the politics of your social groups? I should say that the majority of my friends were really good, really supportive and could definitely see that it was a positive change for me to have done that. But I think the thing that happened was there are a couple of relationships in my life with people who, and it goes back to that thing, you know, like the Dubai story, people who deep down I would kind of think, oh, is this person really, is this a really healthy relationship? Is this a really healthy friendship? Are we really supporting each other? Or are we actually like maybe a little bit toxic for one another? And I think that one of my problems was that I would often relate to people by allowing them to literally just use me as some sort of emotional hitting board. That's not the right word. But the way I would relate to people would be to let them just tell me all of their problems all of the time with no boundaries for my personal feelings, with no boundaries for my time. I felt like I should be there, like constantly be there for my friends. I felt like I could never say to anyone like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm having a bit of a tough evening. There were a couple of people with whom I'd let that get to such an extreme point. I don't think it was a very balanced relationship. And so when I started to have boundaries and when I started to say, you know, no, I'm sorry, I can't do this time, but I can do this time. It sort of put their noses out of joint. And it was interesting because actually there was something that came up even before the one-to-one therapy. It came up in group therapy as well. And there was someone else who said the same, that they'd experienced this thing where actually once they'd started setting out how they wanted their life to be and what they wanted, there were a few friends who were kind of like, oh, you're quite sassy now. You're, oh, what's this? You've suddenly got opinions. And yeah, that I kind of felt that a little bit. And there are a couple of people that I had to uh, let go of from my social circle, which I think is always a good idea. I think if you're feeling that those friendships don't serve you anymore and don't serve both of you, to be honest, I don't necessarily think that my friendship served them either. Then I think it's okay to sort of let go and move on. I think the phrase you might have been looking for, Olivia, is emotional vampires, because I certainly can spot an emotional vampire from a mile away now that I am self-aware of what one is. And like you said, I think I used to be similar to you, where I would want to be there for everyone, but then there were friends where you would need some help and they weren't there for you. There's a wider point here, I think, about finding out how supportive people truly are when it comes to the nitty gritty of managing your mental health. What did you take from those experiences and what advice could you give to any of the listeners who might be struggling but who might not have the most supportive friends or may have friends who just don't have the communication or listening skills to help them? The thing is you have to go to the friends who you think are the best to support you. I think that a lot of the time and I definitely did this a lot when I was younger I would become frustrated with people because they didn't have the skills to support me And sometimes, like, you've got to recognise that some people don't have those skills and some people are never going to have those skills. Some people, A, don't care about learning them or it's not their personality type or they don't understand or less so now, especially as I get older because by the time, like, I've got older, so many of my friends have had some mental health problems. 
But if you've got a friend who is lucky enough to have never experienced anything like that, they quite often won't understand unless they put a bit of effort into it, into understanding it, because it is very difficult to understand if you haven't experienced it. Explaining thoughts and feelings is a very difficult concept. It's not something like, you know, people say, oh, it's just like a broken arm, but it's not because everyone's felt physical pain if they've hurt themselves at some point. Everyone can imagine the pain of breaking your arm, even if all you've done before is scratch your arm, you think, okay, well, it's like that, but it's going to be like a hundred times worse. Whereas with mental pain, it is very difficult, I think, to get it unless you've experienced it or unless you're willing to put a lot of effort in. I think one thing is that I think we should normalise like making new friends. And that's not saying getting rid of your old friends, but if there is a certain type of person that you want to meet, and, and I think this is where actually social media gets a lot of flack but it is also quite a good place to look out for communities especially when it comes to your mental health because there's lots of people talking about it and there might be people you can connect with but also like outside of that in real life and hopefully when we have real life again going out and meeting people or joining a group if there's something that you really want to like learn about and do then I think you don't have to just stick with those friends that you've got there's other people and I think like and if you feel like you've got a connection with someone as well like take that next step ask them to be your friend or ask them to go for a drink I think like we don't normalize that enough the idea that you can actually you don't have to just stick with these people that you've known for your whole life you know you can meet new people as well and maybe they can be people that you can have a conversation with and yeah as I say I think if there are friends who are consistently making you feel bad or you feel like you've tried to communicate your needs and it's not working or you feel like they're not supportive of your mental health and you just feel like they're not a person that like is ever going to really be in your life I also think that we should normalize that like any relationship whether that be romantic or a friendship you should be allowed to say it doesn't have to be dramatic it doesn't have to be a big argument but you should be allowed to say do you know what like this is not serving me or you anymore let's move away from each other and and focus on the people in our lives that do make us feel good about ourselves and as a final question on this topic olivia thankfully the conversation around mental health has come a long way in the last 10 years although we still have a long way to go how do we improve this in the future that doesn't just pay lip service to mental health do you think i think that we need to get better at talking about the deeper mental health problems talking about depression really talking about depression talking about suicidal ideation those are things that I think at the moment a lot of the talk around mental health focuses quite heavily on anxiety and generalized anxiety and it focuses on worry or low feelings and all of those are really valid things and they all deserve to be talked about and especially I think like you know a lot of companies talk about those things and talk about how they impact in the workplace and stuff like that I think if we're ever going to have a really proper open chat about mental health, we're going to have to talk about the harder stuff. And I was discussing this with someone very briefly before Christmas, someone who was working on a podcast that I was working on about mental health. And we were saying like, there's like, when you start talking about those more difficult things, when you start talking about actual deep depression, like long lasting depression or suicidal ideation, people really still do find that very unpalatable and they're kind of like oh no not we want to talk about mental health but like not that we just want to talk about like oh are you feeling like a bit anxious today not this not we want to talk about like the social media stuff and the stuff that's memeable and actually like 
mental health is so much bigger than that and it can be so much tougher than that and all sorts of other things as well you know stuff that I don't have any experience about we don't really talk particularly about things like bipolar disorder and if we do it's still talked about in a really dramatic where it's shown in a really dramatic way on television and we don't talk about ADHD I've got friends I've got two very close friends that have got ADHD and I would not really have known much about it unless I knew them or how it impacts on their mental health you know it's thought of as this thing that just teenage boys have and they just can't sit still there's still a lot of mental health problems that are not talked about in their entirety and talked about in their adult form as well We have come to the final topic of conversation, Olivia, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? I'd actually say, given last year, it's pretty good. I live on my own and I genuinely think, like, had I been younger, I don't know that I would have managed to survive this last year, I'll be completely honest. So I'm very proud of myself that I have managed to get through it. I'm definitely not 100% myself at the moment, but I am, I'd say 80% of the way there and that other 20% will be coming back when the pubs reopen and I can have social interactions with people again. I definitely agree with that, even though I found out that basically I only drink alcohol now as a social thing. Yeah, I've had to address my alcohol consumption since lockdown one when it was absolutely diabolical. And what they say about alcohol and mental health is, I think, absolutely true, which is really disappointing because since I have stopped drinking so much, I am so much happier, clearer headed. Although I am finding it really, really difficult to sleep. So I think my body must have been like relying on wine as some sort of sedative. And now I'm just awake all the time. And I'm like, is this what sobriety would be like? Just being awake non-stop. I'm not sure I need that much energy in my life. So I don't know, I'm going to have to find something else. I don't know, start taking evening runs or something. And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health issues or conditions do you live with, if any? And how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? I still definitely have a bit of generalised anxiety going on it sort of varies sometimes it's not too bad at all other times it's quite bad it generally gets worse around my period and I forget every single month that that's what's happening to me Um, and I'm like oh my god why do I feel like everything I'm so anxious and I hate everyone and I'm like oh yeah that's why every single month which I think a lot of women feel like that as well and I still occasionally have like a very low sort of depressed feeling day but they're very rare now that I feel really really down and when I do have it I tend to sort of lean into it a little bit and I'm just like right I'm just getting in my bed for the day I'm gonna watch rubbish tv and I'm just gonna let my mind switch off and like chill out a bit and that generally tends to really help me just like watch some mind-numbing reality tv and just not think about anything for a day and then I usually feel a bit better what age do you think you were when you first realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health I think I kind of always knew that my problems were mental health problems partly because mental health issues run in my family so I was always kind of aware that they existed I didn't necessarily know how they would feel but I think I was quite conscious like when I started feeling depressed I was like oh yeah this is probably depression can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health who was it with what impact did it have and how do you look back on it did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted Or did it feel like something fairly insignificant and normalised? 
first conversation I had was probably, well, it was with a doctor when I was 18 or 19. And at that point, I was certain I had depression. You know, I was coming home from work and I was getting into bed and then just staying there for ages. I knew that that was what it was. But it didn't... (laughs) It's difficult because it definitely didn't feel normalised. That was like 15 years ago. And at the time, no one spoke about mental health at all. And so it was sort of good to have someone else acknowledge it, you know, for someone to be like, yes, this is depression, what you've got here. But after that, I just sort of went home and I didn't do anything about it because I was just like, oh, well, I guess that's that then. At least I know what it is now. I went back to my boyfriend at the time's flat and I googled celebrities who have depression and at the time there were very few resources so I just remember it was like a list that said Stephen Fry on it and I thought well Stephen Fry's done all right for himself so I'm probably going to be fine and the doctor wasn't particularly helpful they said oh you know you could try antidepressants and I had no idea about antidepressants at all and what they might do so I said oh I'll go away and have a look at it and of course I didn't I was really young I just left it It didn't really massively improve, it just sort of stayed the same and then got worse when I went into my early 20s after that. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people might say to you, it could be a sound, a sensation, a social environment. What can you tell me here? I'm definitely very triggered by being overtired, by being overworked, by being overstimulated in any way. I've definitely had burnout before with working too hard and I have to be really conscious of that because... When I get to that point, then I'm just like, it's almost like my mind feels like it's actually broken. I think at the moment, I'm finding it very triggering how hyper-connected we all are. I feel like a lot of anxiety around having my phone near me all the time, around feeling like I want to support my friends, but at times it's difficult at the moment because everyone is locked down. There's almost like a sort of unsaid thing that you can be available at any time. And actually what that means is yesterday I was on the phone until two o'clock to friends from the morning talking about their various issues. And while like I really want to be there to support them all, I'd sort of fallen into this trap of like, well, I don't really have a good excuse as to why I don't want to answer these phone calls right now. But also when you're back to back helping people with stuff, then you end up emotionally exhausted yourself. So I've definitely found sort of lockdown and feeling like I have to be there for people all the time quite tricky on my mental health and it does make me feel quite anxious. I definitely still suffer with that little bit of guilt when I don't respond to someone if they've sent me a message where they're you know maybe feeling a bit down themselves. I always feel like I should reply quickly and actually sometimes it's better to reply later when you personally have the space to be able to offer them actually some good response or a good listening ear. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? So I think exercise is probably the number one for me. I really, really, really miss the gym. And I really like, I really like tried to resist exercise for a long time as a method of coping with my mental health. I've always sort of gone to the gym, but I never really did like intensive workouts. And then when I started doing intensive workouts and I started going to spin classes and I used to do boxing as well, I was like, oh my God, this does make me feel so much better. And I also think for me, it's a really good way to like carve out some space for myself, put my phone in a locker, 
really concentrate on something just like concentrating on being on that spin bike and listening to what someone else is saying and just like letting any thoughts that are in my head sort of disappear and I think the other thing that is good for me is kind of taking some time out and like setting some boundaries so I know I mentioned this to you before like when we were speaking before this but like trying not to do phone calls and phone stuff on a Sunday I find is good and it really like starts my week up like especially Sunday evening like I really try to avoid like speaking to anyone on the phone on a Sunday evening because it just then lets me like have that wind down space to begin the eve like to begin the evening to begin the week on a sort of like healthy and fresh start that is also really important for me I tweet a lot but I don't have the Twitter app on my phone and I've always been a long-standing advocate for not following I like on Instagram, I follow interesting accounts, but I don't really follow many celebrities or anyone like that. That also helps like just filling my life with things I find interesting. I definitely agree with social media detoxing and social media muting and unfollowing because that has helped me massively, Olivia. Toxic masculinity is a big topic on this podcast, Olivia, as you can imagine. And it's one I try and break down a lot, hopefully in a few more years and a few more pods, maybe toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority and masculinity will be something wholly positive and not derided. What would you define as toxic masculinity as a woman and what examples of it have you experienced that you can share with the listeners, either sexism or something else? Yeah, toxic masculinity is a big and a difficult subject because it is everywhere. And I'm sad to say that I don't think a few years is going to be long enough, sadly, to take away all of the different areas that it falls into, whether it's like sexual abuse, whether it's sexual harassment, whether it's bigger things like rape, whether it's day-to-day sexism. It's something I've experienced a lot. I had an abusive relationship when I was younger, which definitely had a big impact on me. It took years and years and years to get past. I had another one in my late 20s, which ended a lot quicker because I was able to recognise it a lot quicker. I've had a man wank at me on the bus. I've had men consistently talk to me on social media when I haven't invited them to. I've had men be abusive on dating apps. I mean, it's endless. It is endless. Even when I was thinking about this, And I was thinking it's a really difficult topic like for a woman to talk about without getting really angry and really frustrated because like even in the last two months I have been followed home twice and that is at a time when like I'm not even really going anywhere. I'm being followed home from Sainsbury's and it's scary and I think that it's really difficult for like men to understand the extent of all of these things and to understand the impact of these things. I mean having someone who like feels like it's okay to come to your front door with you who then you are conscious knows where you live a stranger who has just randomly followed you off the street is scary and all, and all of these things are sort of scary and I read a good headline recently that said we are not living in the post me too era and we are absolutely not living in the post me too era we are living still in the me too era whether that be the slew of celebrity allegations that have come out recently of which there are again many or whether that be you know in real life and I think it's a hard thing because I think there is this sense that men who believe that they don't act in toxic ways or who believe they are quote-unquote not all men or quote-unquote nice guys can become quite frustrated with it and I can see that if you are someone who doesn't act in those ways it probably is quite frustrating to hear men being derided a lot of the time but when the problem is so big 
I kind of think that not all men crew need to start focusing their energy into talking to men rather than talking to women, which is what happens a lot of the time. And I remember when Me Too first happened and I was working in an office of entirely men and they were all fairly decent men and they said oh well we, d- we don't know anyone like this god of course this is awful of course like women should speak out of course and I was like I can think of three people that we know mutually who have had done these types of things to women and they were like who and I said who and they went oh yeah but like not really like he's not that bad and I was like no he is that bad and this is the problem because you're never going to say anything to him I think a lot of it is like not valuing women as people I think there's still a lot of sort of like sort of attitude that women can exist basically for men and I think that unless men challenge that it's a bit like challenging racism in like say in the workplace I challenge racism a lot in the workplace and I call it out a lot I don't think you can call yourself anti-racist unless you do that. You can't sit there and say, I don't agree with this stuff happening to people unless you're actively challenging it. And so I think the same with toxic masculinity. I think in order to get masculinity into a positive place, which would benefit both men and women massively, there has to be work done. And I think the one thing that I find very frustrating when men talk about it as well as a final point is that quite often you get levied with and I've had this from male friends and it makes me want to you know smack my head off a wall is when they say oh yeah but these things happen to men too and it's like yeah but if those things happen to men too why don't we all want to fight against those things happen to like everyone the excuse should never be these things happen to men too because that's just doubling up the amount of people who are suffering by something happening it would be better to go like, well, okay, well, if these things happen to men too and they happen to women, let's all work out a way to like stop these things happening to both rather than using it as like a counterbalance. Like, oh, okay, well, it happens to them too. So yeah, let's just put up with it. Yeah, like you said, it should be a logical switch to say, yes, they happen to men too. Therefore, we should all be fighting it. So neither sex loses, essentially. Like you said about the stigma. So a lot of male mental health stigma, I find when it comes to the conversation sometimes revolves around men on men so belittling or patronizing it can also enter the dating scene because they might find that or they might think sorry that if they're open about their mental health women might discount them sexually and certainly that's an anxiety i felt consciously and subconsciously doing vent for so long it's something i've started to speak about a bit more especially because in in dating apps Literally, if you put your full name, people can just Google you straight away. And that's something that gives me a slight bit of anxiety. From a female perspective, and this is obviously a broad question, how do you think women can improve the conversation around men's mental health? I think it has to be a both together situation. Yeah, I think that you are right. I think that there is stigma when it comes to mental health for men in a different way to women. I think for men, you know, you're right. There is this idea that maybe a man's got like, I don't know, isn't man enough. And that's not an idea that I believe and it's not an idea that I have ever perpetuated, but I have heard from men that that is something that they have experienced at times with mental health problems. And I think for women, there is the idea still that women are crazy, you know, if they have mental health problems. And I think that in general, that's really difficult and both parties have to come together. I think if you've got men in your life, 
I think it's being conscious about that in terms of like their feelings around their mental health like might not be the same as yours and like their reasons for feeling like they might not be able to speak out are different and being conscious of that when you're sort of talking to them and I think also like men need to be able to feel free to like speak to each other as well I know like you've spoken to me about how you've talked to your friends about mental health that is one thing that I think women it's difficult to understand as a woman because women's friendships are generally quite different. I think we are generally more sort of emotionally aware in the sense that, and I think we talk a lot more about those things. And so I think it's quite hard sometimes for women to relate to that and to understand it. And so I think when you're like thinking about a man and thinking about helping him with his mental health, and I think you have to like remember that maybe he doesn't have the same access that you do to people to loads of listening ears I do think that generally speaking and it is you know a generalization but I do think women probably have within their friendship groups quite often more people they can turn to than men and so I think if you're speaking to a man about his mental health you have to be conscious about that but I think yeah we also need to remove some of that stigma I think that idea of being a tough guy being a man's man being you know masculine in that old traditional sense really needs changing and I think because also it doesn't encompass so many men it doesn't well it doesn't encompass most men most men are not that archetypal sort of builder who drinks beer and like talks about darts or whatever like that's not most men's lived experience most men are nuanced and they have different interests and also you know there are men of different sexualities and their mental health is really important as well and there's a lot of issues that come in with that as well yeah I think in general the whole conversation needs to be much more open but I think with men it's about removing those old stereotypes that I think really really serve to hold people back you said a really important point there Olivia which is about understanding the different mental health stigmas for men and women this is something that previous guest called James Bloodworth talked about and having men understand what women go through when it comes to mental health stigmas and also women understanding what mental stigmas there are for men and trying to both help understand each other we've got time for one more question on dating which we discussed a little bit off air which is the rise of ghosting and chuck away culture if i can coin a phrase why do you think this phenomenon has exploded through dating apps and what mental health impact has it ever had on you or women you know or men you know that have experienced it Ghosting has exploded and I think it's because there's not much accountability when it comes to dating apps. I think it's very easy to sort of stop talking to someone and quite often if you're in those early stages of talking to someone you might not have even told any of your mates about them. So there's no accountability for if you do that to someone, there's no one to go, hang on a second, that's not very nice. Like, why don't you just send them a text? And I think it has huge impact on people's mental health. Like the first time it happened to me, I went absolutely mad. I was like, I just didn't understand it. I'd been seeing this guy for a while and he just disappeared. And and I'd never had it before. You know, I'd had people maybe not talk to me after a first date, which I think is kind of fine. I think mutually if you don't like each other it's nice to send a message and say nice to meet you but ultimately if if you both know there's definitely not a vibe there I'm not completely like you know if someone doesn't text me to say that they didn't think there was a vibe when I didn't think there was a vibe I'm kind of like okay that's fine but this person I'd been seeing for a while 
and it was coming up to his birthday and I'd got like this card and I'd got him a present and I was like what do I do with this stuff like what's going on like I was like he knows I've bought this stuff and I was really like caught up on it and I was just like he wouldn't do this because he knows I spent money on these things like surely he's going to like say something and he just didn't to me it was totally bizarre because I've never done it well I've ghosted one person that's because I found out that they'd lied about quite a lot of things and I just thought this isn't going you know me talking to them is going to end not in a horrible conversation but I've never ghosted anyone that I've been dating I will always at the very least send a text and I think that it's so easy to do that it's very easy to write you know it takes you five seconds I always do this with my friends I'm like it takes you five seconds to write hi it was nice to meet you but unfortunately I don't think that that's you know it's going to go anywhere what was that 10 seconds if someone can't do that I think it says like a lot about their emotional capabilities I always try and say that to people you know if someone's not capable of that they probably weren't capable of holding down a relationship in the first place so you're probably better without them but I think chuck away culture is a difficult one because I know we talked about this as well off air but I really try to not think too much about the reasons that someone might not like me because when I think about the reasons that I might not like someone sometimes they're so like pointless that it just really comes down to like did I fancy them or not and sometimes people just don't fancy you and that's like it can be really disappointing but it's also like it can be down to something as like you know they might not like the way you hold your shoulders when you're talking and that might be to them sexually not very attractive or whatever like attraction is such a weird nuanced thing that you can't internalize some random stranger's opinion of you because you'd be there all day and the reasons are often so sort of silly and meaningless and they don't mean anything by it it's basically just them saying no you're not for me and I think that sometimes when chuck away culture begins to feel like it's getting a bit much we really focus in on ourselves and we forget that we've ever done it you know we forget that we've also thought those things we forget that we've been the one on the other side going oh no I don't fancy them and we didn't hate that person we just didn't want to go out with them so yeah I mean I'm very anti-ghosting and I'm very pro kind dating wherever possible I think it does compassion is free you know you don't have to send someone an essay you don't have to meet up with them especially not when it's illegal but you can send them a little text you know worst comes to worst if they go psycho on you if they send you loads of messages you can block them but most people in the face of a text that says hey you know nice to meet you but I don't want to meet you again will just go okay yeah nice to meet you too take care Well, I think we've come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big, big thank you to Olivia for being my special guest on today's show and for letting me check in with her. I hope I haven't put any of you off journalism. I hope I've merely shone a light on some of the realities of the industry. It's handy to know before you jump in, especially when it comes to your mental health. Remember, listeners, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling generous, write us a review. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and please support our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Hold up. 